here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop calls. Well, I'm excited, man, to be here with uh, Isha Clark and Anaya Butler. Isha, Anaya, how are you doing? Doing great. It's a bit early on this side. <laughs> early? <laughs> my goodness. I thought that this is like the safe time. This is like the time when it's like the, is what, yeah, actually it is a little early. You're right. It's a, it's, I just realized it's a touch. It's a touch. It's going to get real early for you pretty soon, though, uh, uh, Isha, because you're, aren't you going to the greatest school ever created? Yes, I am. <laughs> and what school may that be, actually? So Howard first, University in know. Washington, D.C. That's right. So now you got to now I gotta give you a little tip. Now you got to wait. When you say Howard University, you got to kind of pause and wait for the you know. So you know mm-hmm. that comes with that. <laughs> so you, got to, you got to get ready when, they, when, they, when, they, when, they, when that comes. So you can't, Howard University, that Washington, D.C. party, just got to pause right mm-hmm. there. <laughs> Yeah. I'll keep that in mind. Thank yes, you. Yes, no, you'll, yeah, you'll, oh, don't worry. It, it'll come, it'll come natural. It'll be, it'll be right there. Anaya, how are you? And uh, Anaya, are, are you in high school? Are you heading to college? What's going on on your side? Yeah, I'm doing good. And I'm a freshman in high school. So you'll be in college next year? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what school do you go to? Um, I go to Oakland Charter High School here in Oakland. That's what's up. Okay. I know, I know Oakland quite well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, big shout out to a lot of people in Oakland. I mean, from, I don't know, if, if, if I'm sure you know E-40. And uh, I don't know if you know Mystic. Mystic actually works with the Hip Hop Caucus, but she's actually from the from the Bay. Um, had a really dope song, was Grammy nominated. You should check it out. It's called The Life. So, yeah, she's part of Digital Underground. Shout out Digital Underground. Actually, rest in peace, Shock G. Man, I'm so glad to have y'all. Well, I actually just want to get right to, um, for folks who don't know, I'll start with you, Anaya. For folks who don't know you, who is Anaya Butler? Yeah, so hey, y'all. My name is Anaya Butler. I'm a spoken word poet and youth organizer with Youth Versus Apocalypse. Um, I've been writing poetry for about seven years now. Um, and been performing for about five. So that has been a cool experience. Um, within YVA, I'm a lead circle member, which is like the governing body of YVA. I am a co-coordinator of the Reclaim Our Power campaign and the coordinator of the Hip Hop and Climate Justice Initiative, where we make songs and produce different events to uplift our campaigns. That's amazing. So you are an artist then. Yeah, that's what's up. That's what's up. Same question for you. My dear sister, uh, who is Issa Clark? I feel like this is, I don't really know how to fully answer this question because I'm so many things. (laughs) Um, So I'm Isha. I am born, raised, and educated in Oakland, California. Um, I'm a co-founder of Youth Versus Apocalypse. I've played many roles in the organization, but right now um, I serve as the media and collaborations coordinator um, and I'm also a part of the Youth Lead Circle with Anaya. Um, and I'm also a dancer and a poet and an aspiring filmmaker. Um, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a hard question off the bat. Being from the Bay and having 
Kamala Harris there. Is would you say that she is a would you say that she is a progressive in the standpoint of meaning that man, that's what you want to be, or would you say she's a progressive that there's still some work to do? Issa, you go first on that one. Um, you know, frankly, I don't that's really definitely trust, frankly. Yeah, frankly, I don't really trust any politician. <laughs> and I think that every politician has work to do. Um, because you are working within a system that is born out of slavery and genocide, and that is embedded in every fiber of that institution. And that institution's <laughs> foundation was built to have that perpetuate those systems, even if they look differently now. Mm. And so I think it is the job of every politician to be aware of that in everything that they do. Um, and work to, you know, actively reverse that. Cause if you're not, then it will inevitably, you know, perpetuate itself. Um, so that's my answer to that question. No, Anaya. I echo everything Aisha just said. I for sure agree. Um, yeah, especially about the part, you know, where politicians are really just working in a system that is not meant for people of color. Even if you are a person of color in office, you're still working within that system. And I feel like if you are a person of color and, you know, as a politician, I feel like one of your main jobs should be trying to not only reverse it, but just really dismantle that whole system and rebuild a system where people that look like you are, you know, able to thrive um, and able to live in a world where they're accepted. Nah, thank you both for that. And thank you both for just that, how you responded. I guess, you know, my follow-up to that would be then if we can't build off of these politicians, and we're not, we're not saying, let's still be clear, let's people listening. We're not saying that all politicians are bad people. We're not even saying, we, in fact, we got mad respect for a number of politicians. But there are two politicians who come out of the Bay, who I look at. Um, one is Congressman Barbara Lee, and one is Vice President Harris, as an example. But you're right, 100%. They're, they're within systems. And so I like how you both respond to that, um, Anaya and Isha. But they're in these systems. But if they're in these systems and we need legislation, then how do we push forth with the agendas that we need to do? Or do we just need to be working on a whole new system? Hmm. That is a great question. And to be honest with you, or first, Anaya, is it cool if I... <laughs> if I started off. Um, I think that this is something that I battle with all the time <laughs> because I think the answer is both. And I guess I'll start off by saying that personally, I think, you know, when we're talking about dismantling systems of oppression, what does that even look like during this time? And to me, what it looks like in motion is taking power out of institutions that uphold those systems of oppression and putting the, that resource and power into community-led and pioneered solutions um, that center equity and justice and sustainability rather than you know, extraction and violence and oppression. Um, 
And so, you know, one of the ways that I see this being done is in the movement to defund the police. I think that is an extremely important way to begin doing that radical work. And when I say radical, I mean doing work that pulls out the roots, (laughs) that gets to the the root causes of what's happening. Um, And also, you know, like fights for divestment from the fossil fuel industry, like all of those things are how we really shift power. Um, And to answer your question about legislation, I think... I will say that I don't think I'm super knowledgeable about passing legislation because it's just not what I focus on. But I think that our the way that our political system is set up is so that we have elected officials. We have representatives. We have people who are in those positions of power, who are put in those positions of power, are supposed to be by the people and are supposed to to, to follow the wishes of the people. And every big win that we have had in society, every shift has come from the bottom up. It has been the people who are pushing our elected representatives to do just that, represent us, to carry out our work. And so when it comes to that, I think the answer is both. We build new systems by shifting that power and we push the people who are in positions of power as we're doing that to carry out the actions that we want to see. Mm. Anaya, and I actually want you to respond to that same question, but I want to add a little something to what Isha was just saying. Um, one thing I said, you know, I'm both within the culture and hip hop and have been in this forever. And so one thing that I've said is when the movement is strong. The music is strong. But when the movement is weak, the music is weak. So I think, how does that play out with policy? And, and, and this in general, meaning that kind of what you should saying that when the movement is strong, we can make real change. But then when the movement is not strong, then really we can't do nothing in that aspect. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I I agree with that statement because, you know, what makes a movement is the people, but also the unity between the people and, you know, just the drive from the people. And so I think to have a strong movement really means, to, you know, think about what are you trying to achieve and then, you know, take that topic, whatever you're trying to achieve and just, you know, radicalize it. Like, what are you actually trying to do? Because we're living in a time where we try to, you know, fix several issues that are going on in the world. And so far has been a difficult thing, but I think it's really because we're not really trying to change, you know, these systems that have put these issues here. And so when we look at the climate justice movement, the social justice movement, all of these issues are fueled by systems of oppression that our country and really our world has been founded on. And so to make a movement strong, you really have to know what you want to achieve and, you know, the roots of that issue and really just dismantle them completely by, you know, what Isha was saying, shifting power to community-led movements, because those are the people that are being affected. And those are the people that know what they want, while also, you know, pushing our people in office, our politicians to, you know, carry out the things that we want and actually electing people who will make the radical change that we need. No, thanks for that. You know, one of the things I talked to my producers here on the coolest show. And I have some amazing producers. Shout out to Cross, 
Destiny and Tamara and many others who actually uh, contribute to this process. One thing that we talk about a lot that I tell them is that I tell them that I believe in people being wherever they are in the stage of their life. And I don't sometimes lean on, I think it's sometimes, this is me, I think sometimes within this progressive movement, the term youth gets used in a really kind of strange way, right? And I think because I think it's almost sometimes to put it at the kiddie table. And I I believe that that particularly young people, and this in general, particularly young people of color, young black people to be straightforward, are the ones who need to be leading the movement. In other words, because the genius, the drive, the energy is there. And I don't think it needs to be something where you're putting folks into this box. I think they need to have the same resources. But you you both have created something in that. Um, um, so talk about the institution you've created. What is the story of Youth vs. Apocalypse? Youth vs. Apocalypse um, has an interesting history. So um, it started around 2017, sort of unofficially. Um, there was a group of middle and high school students from Oakland who were pretty much all of color from many different backgrounds when it comes to, you know, class, citizenship status, all of that. Um, And we formed a campaign called Youth Versus Coal. Um, And we were organizing against the development of a coal terminal through West Oakland, which for those, for people who don't know, is is a historically Black working class community. Um, and, and it's still that. <laughs> and so this developer, Phil Tagami, was trying to build that coal terminal. Um, and, you know, we recognize the environmental racism of this saying, like, I'm going to put this coal terminal through this community that's already experiencing extremely high rates of illnesses that are related to pollution that would be exacerbated by this coal terminal so that I can make a bunch of money as a developer. And so we were organizing against that. And um, from that grew this fellowship program, um, actually out of 350 Bay Area. And we were like functioning very autonomously. They were kind of just there supporting in the ways that we asked. Um, And originally that fellowship program was meant to be like for young people who wanted to work on climate justice stuff coming together doing like individual projects that we helped each other on and somewhere in there i don't even really know where it shifted into being more like collective grassroots organizing and we continued with that campaign and others in oakland and then Um, We started, you know, building up notoriety around the Bay and started collaborating with other grassroots organizations. Uh, We were being asked, you know, like, come speak at protests and rallies and and all of that. Um, And so back in February 2019, we had been invited to come speak at an action that actually the Sunrise Movement had organized outside of um, Senator Feinstein's office in San Francisco. And one thing led to another and we wound up being in her office with a group of the younger people who were there, um, including people from earth, earth guardians, Bay area crew, uh, and YVA and some people from sunrise. Um, and we went, wound up having this interaction with her where we were asking her to vote yes on the green new deal. Um, and it went viral (laughs) 
And, you know, we were all over the news, national news, international news. Um, and it really like, it put us on this new platform. And we took that and we ran with that energy and we organized climate strikes in San Francisco. And those became hugely successful. We organized the second largest climate strike in the U.S. Um, and from there, we've just continued to build our organization. We're now not a part of 350 Bay Area anymore. We're our own fiscally sponsored organization. Um, and we, you know, have a youth lead circle and staff members and, you know, six active campaigns and an annual fellowship program. And, you know, we do school-based engagement. And so like, we're really, uh, we really built off of, off of the momentum that we got over those years. Um, and now we're here. Well, that's one I want to say. That's, that's amazing. Congratulations. Um, uh, that's fantastic, actually, to hear all but where, where it's come to. Um, I will tell you, it's interesting. Um, you know, I remember that sit-in in uh, Senator Feinstein's office. I remember seeing that moment. And just, you know, keeping it 100, I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation because um, the way that it was painted to me, just to be honest, and this is this is this we this is part of the conversation, is that it wasn't other groups. When you went through, it was part of Earth Guardians or you know um, uh, YVA, and it was it was other folks were in the room. When when I got it, it was just Sunrise, um, and so. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, well, I'll stop there when, you know, when you, when you hear me say that, cause I, cause I would have loved, I, I, I think that would have helped the story out more. I would have loved to have heard more, particularly, um, youth of color were in that room. And I would have loved to have heard that part as a, as a black person. I would have loved to have heard, I would have loved to have seen that, but it got kind of intertwined. What are your thoughts when you hear me now? When I say that, when it got to me, the story, it was just, it just was just kind of just really just one group. Maybe, maybe it was in the small print. Maybe I missed it. But when I, when I saw it, it, that wasn't the story that I got. I think my answer to that would be the media loves young white people. Mm. <laughs> Let's be real. I no, that's, like, no, that's, that's real. Yeah, no, that's a yeah. very good answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, to keep it a hundred, like, the only re and I okay, and I don't want to bash anyone in the movement. I want to make no, that no. very this is not, clear. This is not this is take the not the bashing. Nope. Right. But we do have to be honest mm -hmm. that if we are saying that we're in this movement for climate justice, that's about dismantling systems of oppression and building back a just and sustainable and equitable world, we know that we need to be following the leadership. <clears throat> excuse me, the leadership of frontline communities. That means black, brown, indigenous youth. That means poor and working class youth. That means, you know, youth who are from communities that are being targeted by the very systems of oppression that we are working to dismantle. And consistently, because and granted, because of all of the social conditioning that we each have, the the very systems of white supremacy that are trying to stop that from happening enter our movements 
and they are a part of the media that is capturing our movements. And we have to be very, very, very intentional about stopping that cycle and about doing the internal work in our movements to ensure that we are actually doing the work that is necessary and following the leadership that is needed to do the work that we're trying to do. And I think that that action and how it was portrayed is a very great example of that. And I think it's something that we've seen over and over again. Sunrise Movement has done a lot of great work, but their base are, are white millennials. Let's be real. They are white millennials mostly. And often because their group is big and has this national and really international recognition, they are given credit for things that they're not doing. And again, to their credit, it's not always their fault. (laughs) Like sometimes it's just because they see the yellow t-shirts and they're like, oh my God, sunrise, like, let's get this, you know? Um, But just to clear the air, like that, the reason why we were in her office is because of the Bay Area Earth Guardians crew. They brought a letter that they wanted to present Mm. to her and they invited the young people who were at that action to go up with them and do that. And YVA were, was the other youngest group there. And then it was some folks from Sunrise who wound up coming up. But that action, that specific moment where we were in her office is credited to Bay Area Earth Guardians crew. And they were like 10, 11, and 12 at that time. Um, so, yeah. No. Naya, do you want to add anything? <laughs> um, yeah. I think from a broad perspective, the climate justice movement has been like whitewashed, you know, it hasn't always been, you know, led by people of color. It has mostly been led by, you know, white people and like you just said, white millennials. And so I think when we look at the climate justice movement, like Isha said, some of those, you know, systems of oppression are sort of like, you know, coming into the movement and part of achieving Climate justice means to, you know, dismantle those systems, but also keep them out of the movements and any other movements that are going on right now, because I feel like really any movement is about shifting power to the people who are being oppressed by those oppressive systems. And so when, you know, when we look at the situation where, you know, um, YVA and other groups that were there, Earth Bay Guardians weren't credited, you know, for the Feinstein um I guess, confront it. Um, it's like, it's, it's just another example of the system, you know, working against people of color at the end of the day. And so part of the work that we do and many other orgs do are, you know, making sure that doesn't happen and really just shifting power um, to the people who have, who are being oppressed and who are being facing the consequences of the climate crisis. Thank you both for that. And, and I see myself as like an OG in this process. I've been around this movement for a long time. And so, and the reason why we created this this discourse here on The Coolest Show was to have some of these real conversations that wouldn't take place in other places. And so one of the things I just wanted to bring up there is that, you know, you said, and now you're both right, but I just want to add another, another layer to this. You know, when I look at, um, you know, youth versus apocalypse, I look at groups like Generation Green, and uh, Black Millennials for Flint, I can just keep going on and on. I see this these amazing um, people who are just ready to get it on for our people and make and fight the fight. And I've been around long enough 
in this movement so that I predate 350. I predate Sunrise. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of the folks who were in those movements would come to things that we were having when they were just around your age and I, when they were freshmen in, in high school, right? You get what I'm saying? So I've been, I've seen them grow. And I, and, I, and on one side, like what Isha said, this is not about the bashing. I, I don't think they would take it as that. If they are, are truly one to be allies, they would say this is a great conversation. And so, yes, uh, the thing for me, though, what I've seen over that 15 years, in essence, um, is this, is that I will see, there were groups who were like um, YVA and Generation Green and Black Moons for Flint 15 years ago, just like you. And they were forced to um, assimilate and go into other organizations while these organizations were allowed to prosper. That's what I'm saying. And so now there's a, there's a, there's, I think the time has come where that needs to stop, where groups, um, to be frank, like uh, YVA, Youth versus Apocalypse, so many people know who I'm talking about. They hear, they clear, going to support these these groups, Generation Green, and many others. Um, that they are not forced to. When you see them, they're forced to break off and then go into other organizations to survive. And so there's something to that. So I've seen this story for so long, 15 plus years, in which white, particularly white youth groups have been allowed to grow and indigenous and black and BIPOC groups have not been allowed to grow and they've had to then break apart. And so when you hear me say that to you, um, that's why when I'm looking at these tapes and I hear what he just said, there was much more groups than the ground. I have to say that to me, it's it's on these groups to make sure when they're doing these videos. It's, if you're a true ally, it's on it's on you to be like who's in the room. You know who's in the room. You know if it's Earth Guardians. You know what that is. So it's on you to say that. But you know if you say that, then funders may be like, well, that might fund them. Well, then be, let them be funded then. Let them be funded. Let, let, you know, ha- have the courage to be like, well, maybe I, maybe I don't need to be the gatekeeper. Maybe I don't need to be the one to be the middle ground. What are your thoughts on what I'm saying, that that history of this this kind of thing where this 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 kind of mentality where particularly BIPOC and Black and Indigenous and people of color-led youth groups, in essence, are continuously not being supported uh, for the long term. Facts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, facts. I mean, I feel like I, I I appreciate you taking it there and just being so real about everything that we're talking about. Um, it's really a breath of fresh air. And I think I want to start it off by saying, like, you know, I haven't been in this movement for that long. I've been, you know, organizing for climate and environmental justice since like 2017. So it's been four years now. So I haven't seen that. but. You know, when I was coming into the movement or even before that, like I never felt connected to anything that was climate or environment related when it came to organizing, because it was always presented to me as something that was hella white. 
and that you had to have a certain amount of privilege to be able to care about. And that is a narrative that has been crafted by mainstream media because that is who they cover. That is who they're attracted to. And because of that, for so long, I really believe that the movement up until that point had just been a bunch of, you know, old white people. And that is not true. Like, that is not true. There has been environmental justice since maybe even before, you know, the first European colonizers touched the Americas and all in Africa and like all these other places, like, because that like, that is when this like environmental terrorism started. That's what colonization is about. Exploiting people, taking resources, like that's what this is, you know? And so we black and indigenous people and other people of color have been on the front lines of this movement, have been, you know, leading environmental justice and climate justice since before, like you said, since before all these like big greens and, and all of these other things. So I do think that's an important um, an important thing to say. And I think, you know, when I was younger, I didn't get that. And so I think I continue to perpetuate that misinformation around that. So I want to clear the air now. Um, but, you know, in terms of what you're saying around, like, basically these like grassroots BIPOC organizations being absorbed into other organizations, you know, I don't, because I haven't been around for very long, I haven't seen that. But when I was hearing you say that, it felt true. <laughs> it felt like, yeah, that seems like something that could happen. And I do agree that it is the responsibility of these big greens, like, you know, 350, Bay, not just Bay Area, but 350.org, uh, EDF, Sierra Club, like all of these groups that have a lot of notoriety. <clears throat> to be to be aware of the position that they have and the way that without even realizing it they take they take from organizations like us you know and i think a very uh good example of this <clears throat> i don't know why there's so it's just all the truth is coming up i guess <laughs> all in my throat <laughs> um <laughs> But, you know, YVA for a, for a minute was having a really hard time getting funding. And we applied to this grant and it was a really big grant. I think it was like $100,000 or something like that, which is a lot for us. And we didn't get it. And when we talked to them, they were like, oh, you know, you guys actually scored really high. It's just that you're pretty new. So we, we thought that the risk was a little bit too much. Another thing that we see were like organizations who are newer, blacker, browner, indi more indigenous, <laughs> you know, more like people from frontline communities are seen as a risky investment. That's another thing. So we were like, okay, fast forward a little bit of time. They reached out to me and said, Isha, we're having this event where the donors who decided who was getting that grant are going to be announcing who the winners are. And we would love 
if you would come for, you know, like an $150 stipend and inspire them, give Mm -hmm. them, give them a speech to open up this event. That is the, the very problem with like exactly what you're saying. It's like, they want, and when I say they, I mean more like institutionalized groups want us BIPOC youth who are doing the grassroots hard ass organizing to be inspirational and to show up and to speak and to play this superficial role that makes them feel better about themselves, but they don't want to fund our work. They don't want to uplift the actual work that we're doing to dismantle the systems of oppression that frankly they're benefiting from and aren't doing as good of a job as I think they should be at confronting those things. So <laughs> yeah, that, that's my answer well, to that. No, no, no. Well, I, I got, I want to let Anaya hop in and you just move me to say something behind what you just said, but Anaya, you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, Isha really hit it all. And then like the thing, you know, about, you know, sort of funding (laughs) newer groups. um, I think it's really, you know, to say newer is just really an excuse. And then to also see like what Isha was saying that, you know, BIPOC people, Black Indigenous people of color have been doing grassroots organizing for the longest now. It's just, you know, the media doesn't cover it. And when I first learned about, you know, the climate crisis, I had a, a similar experience like Isha's. It wasn't, you know, brought to me as, you know, this issue that is disproportionately exploiting my people. It was brought to this issue. It was like, okay, we need to stop using plastic straws. Like that probably would have been a solution about 40 years ago, but now we're coming to this time where it's really about save the whole entire planet because that's what's going to happen if we don't, you know, dismantle these systems of oppression and, you know, push more legislation that will help, you know, dismantle the climate crisis. And so as I learned more about, you know, climate change, I also learned more about, you know, the intersections of climate change and the way that these systems of repression really exacerbated and how they, you know, really exploit people of color and in my communities in Oakland. And so when I learned more about that, that's when I first got into organizing. I've been organizing for about two years now, which is not long at all. Um, But that's, you know, it took me a long time to really, you know, learn how the climate crisis is affecting my people and how it's affecting me as an individual. Um, So to say all that, I want to say that the climate crisis has been a whitewashed thing, as I said before, but I think it's really on these big orgs to really, you know, check where they stand and check to really check their privilege. And as individuals, if you know, you know, you're a white person and you know, you're an adult, really check your privilege and see how you can use your privilege, not to speak for these, you know, communities that are being oppressed, but to pass the mic to them. Because I feel like for generations now, it has been, you know, people, oh, frontline communities are being affected. Okay, we know that, but let these frontline communities speak for themselves and tell the people, you know, what we need so they can stop being frontline communities. And so I think it really has to be about checking your privilege, passing the mic, and just recognizing where you stand um, in this climate crisis. And, you know, to recognize that people of color are already being affected. You know, we're talking about all the effects that happen, happen in the future, 
the majority of the global South are already seeing some of those effects. They're already experiencing them. And so recognizing that and recognize where you stand, you know, how you live throughout this world with your identity, but also in the climate crisis is key to really, you know, achieving climate justice and to sort of working out of those systems of oppression. Uh, powerful. So I just wanted to follow up on what you both said, Anaya and Isha. I just wanted to say this. So Isha, you said something that was that hit hit me in my hit me in my chest because, and I so you and so yeah, no, and, and, and we're gonna go there. We we are hundred percent. We go, we gonna go there. So if you're listening right now, buckle your seatbelt because uh, we about to we about to hit all hit the speed pedal, hit no brakes. Um, uh, let me say this. The reason why we can connect, why I, as Rev, Yearwood, and Anaya, and Issa can connect, for those who are listening, is simply because of culture. We're not in the same age group. We're not, obviously, we don't live in the same communities, per se. Um, but we all, because it's a connection with culture. And I've been saying that for years. Culture connects. Um, because culture, more than anything, allows for us to then have this unique ability to uh just to connect, that's different than it would be for other things. I lead that by saying this. So, Isha, I went through exactly what you went through. And I it hit me. So it's not a game. So I went through that 20 years ago in which I was literally told back then the exact same thing. Do everything we could do. Score really well. Uh, and then, but then, you know, Rev, come here and speak. And do whatever. And it was like, at first, I fell for it. I ain't gonna lie. It was like, all right, well, I it was like, all right, well, let me go there and and speak. Like that'll get me into the room so I can, you know, whatever. And 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 that'll make the situation easier. But I would go there and and, and say certain things and realize that they would be funding and they would be going to certain groups. Fast forward, now Hip Hop Caucus is now turning 17 years. Um, almost as old as both of you in this situation. Um, but the one thing that changed there is that I realized for me was that a lot of times these entities were a part of the violence in my community. Let me explain. By having me going through this process, they knew by making that say that I was, I was new, for, I'm, and we still knew in caucus 17 years later. By saying you knew, by saying you don't have the infrastructure, by saying you don't have the mechanisms, I would be like, wow, we doing literally a thesis for, for a grant proposal. And I would hear about somebody literally writing on a napkin, no joke. This is my idea. Right on a napkin doing lunch, and they would get the, they would get the funding for it. I said, well, something is wrong here. And then I realized this is the situation. I realized that there are two things. One is clear with the fossil fuel communities, obviously in your neighborhood with Chevron, and I know y'all in the Bay call them Chevron. And so I know I know that y'all would be in a situation where it'd be like, okay, they're easy to pick out. They, they are putting chemicals in our communities. They are trying to kill us. Their business plan is a death sentence for our community. We got that. Check the box. We got it. They, they are enemy. Easy. They're the enemy. We're the good guys. We, we, we won't go to war. On the other hand, though, our allies maybe ain't so much our allies because you see us suffering and you see us dying, you know that we should be the ones out front, not some polar bear or sea turtle 
He's not discussing health or the connection and dot between police brutality or poverty. And you still not even empowering us who want to do the work. When do we then say enough is enough and say this has got to stop because we being played from both sides? Isha, what are your thoughts on it? Woo! You bringing some real to this. Okay, I'm trying to organize my thoughts because I have a lot that comes up for me when you say that. I think it's, it's so true. You don't have to be conservative to benefit from white supremacy. Hmm. You don't have to be conservative to benefit from capitalism, from colonialism, from patriarchy, from ableism, from all of these foundational systems of oppression that we know are responsible for creating the climate crisis that have created the conditions in our communities that cause our suffering and also have fueled the climate crisis. And it, when you are put in a position in society in which you have privilege, you're one put in a position where you don't have to think about the experience of anyone outside of that privilege. And so it becomes easy to just put your blinders on and keep doing what you're doing, one. Two, when you're given that privilege in society, you don't want to give that up (laughs) because it gives you power in society. And that privilege is handed on both sides of the aisle. And so when we're talking about you know, the climate, the movement to solve climate change. And I don't call it the climate justice movement when I'm talking outside of, you know, like grassroots frontline organizing, because to me, that's what climate justice is about. But, you know, the movement to stop climate change, when you paint it as this narrative of it being about, you know, saving the rainforest and the polar bears, and like, if you just go (laughs) vegan, we'll be okay. That erases the experience of people in our communities and of the real problem behind the climate crisis. Because it's easier as a privileged, probably wealthy white person that we see, you know, in these big greens and, you know, in the mainstream leadership positions of this movement, it's easier to do that work because that you don't have to confront your privilege. Mm-hmm. You don't have to confront the realities that people in our communities are experiencing. You don't have to confront the fact that you are going to have to give up your power in society if you want to stop this crisis. And that is something that is very uncomfortable for these people to do because they want to stop climate change, but they don't necessarily want to dismantle white supremacy. They don't necessarily want to stop imperialism or colonialism. That's a bit too much. Okay. I'm just trying to like, you know, make sure that I, my, my mansion don't get burned up by a wildfire or, you know, I get to have my beach house and it won't get flooded by the sea level rise. You know, like that's bullshit. <laughs> okay. And anyone who's really doing this work knows that you don't get to do that fight. 
Because if we do that fight, we will lose because Mm. it doesn't actually address the problem, which is our society, which is our extractive society that prioritizes white people and people who have money. And, you know, we've seen that since the beginning of our society. And that is what we need to get rid of. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) Again, I think Isha hit it all. And I really just want to echo everything she said. And then just to like, I guess, speak more about, you know, people not checking their privilege. It's because they'll lose it if, you know, we actually achieve the climate justice that we're talking about, you know. And so, you know, they sort of, you know, erased the and dismiss the experiences that people of color are experiencing with the climate crisis because, you know, they want to keep their privilege. They want to keep their power. But you really have to climate justice work is about, you know, looking at the root of things and being radical. And, you know, if we're being radical, they don't get to have their privilege. They don't get to have their power. They don't get to live the life they've been living because it it doesn't benefit, you know, people of color. It only exploits them even more. It only puts them in a position where, you know, we will continue to be frontline communities, will continue to be exploited. And so when we look at the climate crisis and then, you know, the climate justice movement along with other social issues, it has to be about dismantling these systems of oppression. And you can't be a person who is fighting for, you know, to dismantle climate change if, you know, you want to, you know, live the same lifestyle you're living now, because that's just not going to work. It's not helping. It's not only, you know, exacerbating the climate crisis, but it's also exploiting these communities of color. And so you really just have to, you know, check yourself and then just realize, you know, even though, you know, you ran, you just got randomly selected to be this person with this privilege, um, you still have to realize that that has to go that idea of you know having privilege that idea but you know you having privilege as a person has to go in order to achieve climate crisis and in order to shift the power to the people of color and to really you know be radical and to look at the root of things and you know to also because I feel like it's hard to understand where you know how people of color are living through the climate crisis but I think you just really have to check yourself uh, and then just check, you know, where you are right now as a person. And then just really understand that this is reality that we can no longer live in if we want to live in a world where every person, every living thing is able to thrive. Man, man. So y- y'all are hitting on some stuff. I, g- I got to like run through a bunch of these, some of these good questions here, but I think that we don't hit on some stuff that I think that, uh, I think it's going to shake some folks up as as they're listening to this. Um, you know, recently the community was shaken by a reminder from the past of the destruction of the move bombing which took place in Philadelphia as a part of a long, painful history of racist violence against black children. From Emmett Till to George Stinney, the 16th Street Baptist bombing, Trayvon Martin, Our children have been murdered at a consistent rate via state-sanctioned or direct state violence. That is at least, that that means for us that we are never too young to organize in our community. Um, 
the question I want to ask, and I want to actually tell you a story about this. I want you to meditate on a question if I tell you the story. Is that how does this reality affect your strategy? Everything you said so far in regards to what it means for you as um, powerful black leaders in this movement who are by your age, young people. Um, how does that reality affect your strategy and tactics, everything you just said? And I actually want to say this, you know, one of the hardest things I ever had to do in this movement was, um, as you know, I, I am, I work a lot with what people would call the streets. And, and in that process, um, being within the streets, so to speak, I had to um, make a decision in which I had to uh, do a, a funeral. I do a lot of funerals for gun violence and different things in our community. Um, one funeral I had to do was for a, a girl who was your age, Anaya, and she had asthma. And I didn't know then, like I know now, that 68% of black people live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. I didn't know the violence of pollution and the genocide back then. Um, but what I what I did know that this mother make a choice between paying for an inhaler um, for her child or paying for groceries. And she was doing Russian roulette. And she decided to pay for groceries. And then that little girl had an asthma attack and died. It was hard for me because the time I was doing that funeral, um, the entire time I was doing that funeral, um, that mom was trying to climb into that casket. And so it was crazy hard. I just, I can't even get into it. It was just so hard. And so when I hear you, Anaya, and I hear you, Isha, I'm like, well, damn, they got to fight. They fighting for their lives. I mean, how dare these folks get in the way of your fight? And so I guess with knowing that you literally fighting for your lives and for your community, how does that reality affect your strategy and tactics? When I first, you know, started my work as an activist before I really became an organizer, my form of activism was my poetry and the majority of it still is. And I started writing poetry when I was eight. And so um, most of my poetry was around police brutality. When I first started to write, that was around the time that Trayvon Martin was killed. And so my first poem was, you know, about that because I'm the youngest. And so I grew up in a household with a bunch of brothers and one sister. And now I have, you know, a bunch of nephews and like two nieces. Um, so I grew up, you know, in a community and in a household where I'm surrounded by black men who any day could be, you know, killed by white supremacists. And I say white supremacists because, you know, police are literally a system that, you know, used to catch runaway enslaved people. And so it's like to call them police is, is, is just not right. And so, you know, knowing this and knowing how white supremacy, police and other systems of oppression have sort of, you know, taken away the right for black people to breathe and to live and to thrive and to, you know, be able to prosper in a world where, you know, colonization is the foundational the foundational systems of this country it really fuels my activism and so you know to get back to your question knowing all that and you know the historical oppression of 
black people, it sort of just, you know, it pushes me more, but it, it always, I always center my work back to black people have to have, you know, the power has to be shifted to black and indigenous people when it comes to really any movement. Cause I feel like any movement is just about dismantling those foundational systems of oppression, which have historically affected and exploited black communities. And so all of my work, all of my poetry, all of my organizing goes back to the idea that the power has to shift to black people. Black people have to be the, the leaders of you know these movements, especially the climate crisis movement, because we are the ones that are disproportionately being exploited by the climate crisis and our lives are viewed as disposable and has been since, you know, you know, since colonization. And so it's just like that idea and that belief that our lives are disposable is something that I'm always fighting against and something that I always use with my organizing, my activism, my poetry to fight against. And so I want, I'm trying to, you know, help build a world where we have new foundations of sustainability, equity, and really just honesty because we're living in a world where, you know, it's just the complete opposite of that. And so the overall goal is to really create a world where Black people and really, you know, every living thing on this planet is able to thrive and allowed to breathe because I feel like this year and really 2020 was all about Black people not breathing, not only with, you know, police foot on our necks, but because of the pollution shoved down our throats and just so much other stuff. So I feel like Black people are just being hit from all angles, gentrification, police brutality, you know, the climate crisis. And so um, to center it all back to the question, um, my work is about building a world where Black people can thrive. And that's what I do with my organizing, my poetry, and really any form of work um, that I'm doing. Mm. You know, this ain't a hobby. <laughs> this is a necessity, you know? And I hate when people talk about this movement as if it is a hobby. Mm. To say that is to, and I feel my blood like boiling as I'm saying this, because like you said, this is about our lives. Like, this is about our ancestors who were enslaved in this country and all over the world. Like, this is about, this is, <laughs> woo! Like James Baldwin said, to be Black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. And I feel that so much. And I, you know, you asked how that, how that, you know, informs the work that we do and the strategy that we use. And I think that is what has made us so successful and powerful because we understand this as a necessity. <laughs> like we understand this work as the only way that we can move forward, the only way that we can survive. And so I think that makes us courageous and that makes us not give a damn. We talk about, you know, dismantling white supremacy and colonialism and capitalism and all of these things because we know that it is the root cause of not even the climate breakdown, 
But the societal breakdown that we are experiencing, that everyone is experiencing right now, and we understand that so intimately as, you know, Black youth, as, you know, NYVA, we have so so many different kinds of people, but BIPOC youth, you know, immigrant youth, um, you know, poor youth, like we understand that experience and we understand oppression, not just as statistics and academic words, but as lived experiences. And we freaking live and breathe liberation and this work. So yeah, it ain't a hobby. <laughs> it's a necessity. Come on now. I'm with listen, you heard it right here. We, we, we used to have a thing you said at the caucus where we, we would say, uh nobody's smiling. No, and it would, that would be kind of our, that's kind of our little code to each other when we would go in some rooms or certain things. Nobody, it's ain't no hobby. It's ain't no game. Nobody's smiling, man. This is, this is, this is about fighting for our people. It's about liberation. Man, the time went so fast. I can't believe how fast this time went. This is crazy. Oh, man. So, I, listen, I want to uh, make sure, thank you both for sharing this insight, your vision, your call to action, just who you are. How can folks support your work? And what's next for uh, YVA, Youth versus Apocalypse? Yeah, so y'all can go to our website, youthversusapocalypse.org, where you can find our social media. Our Instagram and Facebook is at Youth versus Apocalypse. And then our Twitter is Y underscore VS underscore A. Um, if you are a youth and you're interested in getting involved, you can go to our campaigns. Um, most of our campaigns are Bay Area based, but since we're doing, you know, virtual stuff, I, I encourage you to, you know, get involved and to educate yourself about stuff that's going on. Um, I'm currently in the process of producing um, our third music video and third song. So stay tuned for that. And around mid-June, that will be releasing soon. Um, and yeah, I hope y'all learned a lot. Thank y'all for having us here. Yeah, definitely. She said it all. <laughs> Thank you. This was such a beautiful true conversation and i'm honored to have been a part of it no thank you both and uh definitely you got a a comrade and a friend with the hip-hop caucus for sure and thank you for being on the coolest show and those were our guests today isha clark co-founder of youth verse apocalypse and anaya butler the hip-hop and climate justice coordinator for youth verse apocalypse and i am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Fake 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.